Outsiders is made possible by grants from the Dennis A. Hunt Fund at USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, Studio to Be Seattle, and Jim and Beard of Falconer of Seattle. Just be aware, this episode includes a scene of someone overdosing, a description of rape, and some adult language. Have you been staying in your tent or going to a shelter? I've been staying in my tent. That's my home. Late winter brings back-to-back snowstorms to Olympia, Washington, the most snow this part of the state has seen in decades. Hundreds of unsheltered people are huddled in the heart of the city trying to avoid death from the cold. Jessica's at Olympia's sanctioned tent city, the mitigation site. It's been up and running for weeks now. So you've got poles in your tent reinforcing it so yep. the snow doesn't collapse it. Is there anything else you've done to, to try to like adapt to this weather? Um, I get out and I knock the uh, water off of it, the snow, everything off my tarps, and I re-bungee it back down. I'll do it three times a day if it's snowing because it's so heavy. It's um, about a 20-minute process. Why, why stay in your tent when, when you could go to the, the mission or something? Home is where you make it, and... I like my home. Whether it's wet, whether it's snowy, whether it's hot, whether it's dirty, it's mine. To Jessica, this fenced-in mitigation site is starting to feel like home, too. She volunteers to work security at the front gate and checks on her neighbors in the cold. She worries about them after a man who was homeless died in Olympia the previous winter. He was actually one of the homeless people down here. And he was sick and he laid down over by the old warming center over here. He went to sleep and nobody checked on him and that was it. That was last winter? Yep, last winter. It's really scary. Yeah. His name was Jesse, 38 years old. I checked with the coroner's office. His cause of death was hypothermia plus a lack of oxygen to his brain caused by an abscess in his throat from an infection. Yeah, I get scared. I know for sure I do. Um, people's heart rates are slow, people have coughs, people can't breathe, you know, so it's, it's hard on some people out here. And I'm not going to have to let that happen this year at all if I can help it myself. So, And all it takes is somebody to go, hey, are you okay? And a blanket, you know. Encampments like this are part of our society, but also a parallel society with their own rules, their own reality. Part of that reality is constant danger from the cold, the rain, illness, other people. But another part of that reality is people helping each other survive. I'm Will James, this is Outsiders. And in this episode, we hear about how people stay alive in this parallel society and sometimes don't. Even as snow blankets Olympia, the city scrambles to build a system to manage a spike in the number of people living downtown unsheltered. In episode one, we talked about how the tent city was conceived, how it was designed to be a temporary waypoint for more than 100 people living outside. Right when it opened, a judge stopped the city from moving people in beyond the first 100 or so. That was because of a lawsuit from nearby business owners who feared the mitigation site would bring more drugs and crime to the area. But since then, the judge has lifted the ban so more people can move in. Colin DeForest oversees Olympia's response to homelessness. He's relieved. 
the judge kind of threw out the restraining order and he understood what I think we're trying to get a lot of these business owners to understand that the exact thing that you don't want in the downtown, lawlessness, messiness, health and safety concerns, the way we're going to mitigate those is through the mitigation site. And Collins just built a new step in a system he hopes will gradually move people out of homelessness. The tiny house village has finally opened it. It has been open for... He's created what's called a tiny house village a mile from the mitigation site. We'll get into how this place works later in the series, but it's basically a cluster of shed-like houses. It's where people graduate when they're considered stable enough to leave the mitigation site. Colin moved the first few people in as snow came down around them. This is all part of the plan he laid out in episode one. We really want this to be a model for other communities and also this community. So to, to that point, every intervention that we have where it's a success, what that does is let us move on to the next need. I think there's a lot of work to be done still, but I'd say I, I, I'm really happy with where we're at right now, but um, this has to be a success, right? But even with all this unfolding, hundreds of people remain in unsanctioned camps around Olympia. The most visible is a block from the mitigation site on what used to be a downtown parking lot. This camp is called the Smart Lot. I've also heard people call it the Hell Pit. In the few months it's existed, it's gotten a reputation as a dangerous place and a lot of unsheltered people avoid it. Still, dozens call it home. 500 feet from a coffee shop and 1,000 feet from a pottery studio, the Smart Lot is a place where fights are common, where a man was stabbed, where the fire department responds multiple times a week for medical emergencies, where two people died over the winter even before the snow. This is many of our most challenging individuals, many of our individuals that, for whatever reason to this point, have decided that they don't want to participate in the mitigation site. They're really not interested in, in, in following, I won't say following the rules, but they're not into following the rules that we have at that site or also the rules that they have at the shelter. Why should we have to go from one tent to another tent? That's not fixing the problem. Jeremy lives at the Smart Lot. He says a lot of people here see the mitigation site as repressive, with its uniform tents and its fence. He says people have figured out their own ways to survive out here in their own camps. Why give that up for something that's not much better? I feel like it's putting a Band-Aid on the problem, and it's not okay with the people. It's not. You got a whole cage around you. It's just like, they ain't how you treat people. You don't treat them like animals because we're all the same. They're somebody's brother, they're somebody's sister, they're somebody's mom, dad, uncle down here. That, you know what I mean, people just try to count out. It might look like we're scums on the earth, it might look like we're animals, but at the end of the day, we're family. You know, one eat, we all eat. You know, we all govern ourselves. We're trying to, like, really come together and get to a bigger and better situation. Like, yeah, there's also bad, you know, here's your fights, here's your stabbings, here's this, here's your ODs, here's that. But the city of Olympia is always talking about the bad, but what about the good? As Jeremy's talking, a woman who lives in the encampment walks over. And suddenly, everything Jeremy's talking about, the good and the bad, unfolds right in front of me. But we can do better. What, what's happening? I just want these overdoses. Okay. 
Hey, anybody got Narcan? They already gave her some. She's not responding. They got her to get her. Narcan is a drug that can bring someone back from the brink of death if they're overdosing on an opioid like heroin. You spray it up someone's nose. A lot of people out here carry it. They get it from advocates who give it out. Hi, I'm at the in, uh, homeless encampment on uh, the smart lot, and I just heard that someone is overdosing here. Yes, exactly, that one. Do you know um, what she's on? Probably heroin. Probably heroin. She's barely breathing, tell them. She's barely breathing. They're trying to do CPR. I don't know if they really know how. Yeah. Are they on their way? People are crowded around a tent. Inside, a woman is sprawled out, not moving. Her skin is pale. She's about 20 years old. Uh, this Somebody give her CPR, man. The dispatcher can walk someone through CPR. I went to medical assisting, so I kind of know it, but I don't. Do you I've want to try? Change. They've narcaned her like three times. She needs CPR. Yeah, dude. I can try. I can try. Here. Compressions only. No breathing. Compressions only. Okay. Keep doing the compressions. Come on, honey. Come on, honey. And you want to depress? Here we go. Hey, she's grabbing my hands. Yeah, right in the center. Come on, here we go. Come on, honey. There we go. Come on, honey. Well, she's kind of coming too. I don't know if she needs a CPR anymore. Come on, honey. Hey, Fox. Fox. There we go. There we go. Come on. There we go. Yep. Come on. By the time the ambulance arrives, the woman's waking up. Her neighbors in the camp have already saved her. She declines a trip to the emergency room. I don't know the woman's name, just the street name people shouted as they pumped on her chest. They call her Fox. How often does something like that happen here? Uh, every few days, you know what I mean, at this site alone, every few days. And uh, it's sad, you know. The best data we have on people who die while homeless are from 60 miles north of Olympia in the county that includes Seattle. King County's medical examiner takes special care to investigate whether someone was homeless when they died and keeps track of those deaths. Most counties don't. The number of people who died while homeless more than doubled between 2012 and 2018 to nearly 200. About a third of those deaths were from drug overdoses. But the most common reason for death was natural causes, heart and breathing problems, cancer, and other illnesses. The median age of death was 54. As winter becomes spring, Olympia reaches a turning point. For months, the city stopped enforcing anti-camping rules and allowed unsanctioned camps like the Smart Lot to exist. That was because of a federal court decision we talked about in episode two. 
It basically says cities can't punish someone who's homeless for sleeping on public property if there's nowhere else for them to go. But over the winter, Olympia's leaders decide they can start clearing these camps again, bringing back what are called sweeps, and still comply with the court's decision. It's the mitigation site that allows them to do this. What they do is conduct a sweep and offer everyone a spot in the mitigation site. The people being displaced can take it or leave it, but that offer gives the city legal cover to sweep the camps. It allows law enforcement to actually enforce rules and laws in the downtown and direct individuals that are camping in unsafe spots or unsanctioned spots to say, hey guys, you can't be here, but we have an option for you over here. If we don't have these sites, our law enforcement, we as a city can do nothing. One by one, Olympia sweeps all of the encampments downtown until only the smart lot is left. We have a lot of safety concerns for the individuals, but also for the community. I mean, if we look here to our left, and I know this is radio, but if you're in a wheelchair or you have mobility issues, you can no longer cross the street on the corner of State and Franklin. That sidewalk is completely blocked. So it's things like that that are really concerning. I think used needles pretty much everywhere. Um, human feces all over. These are very concerning things that are kind of leading us to want to make sure that we can remove this site as quick as possible. Like most encampments, there are sometimes syringes and feces on the ground in and around the smart lot. It's a stretch to say they're everywhere. Salmon-colored flyers go up all over the smart lot, warning of a sweep in six days. Some residents of the camp scramble to clean up in an attempt to appease the city and plead with city council members to halt the sweep. But one morning, under a blue sky, the deadline arrives. Payloaders are waiting to crush the camp as the people living here rush to pack up their belongings. I pass Jeremy. You know, we put it on a good fight, man, but at the end of the day, you know, you gotta figure, you know what I'm saying? It's all about politics and developers. One of the people rushing around helping others pack is Ty Gundel. She's with an advocacy group called Just Housing. To her, this sweep isn't actually about health and safety. It's about Olympia falling back into familiar habits after facing pressure from people like business owners to clean up downtown. And I think that that pressure really just weighed on the city and just kind of got to the point of giving up on finding a better way forward and just kind of resorting to business as usual. Nearby, a woman named Bobby is taking belongings out of her tent and piling them up outside. A month earlier, I watched her get swept from a different camp three blocks away. Now it's happening again. Um, I've been homeless since April, so this has happened roughly about five times now. You said this is stressful. like. What? Yeah, because we get given an early-ass time limit, which is ridiculous. We should be given, you know, till afternoon, like every, everybody else. Who in the fuck does 8 a.m.? That is a douche move. People sleep. What, what we got to wake up at, like, 3 in the morning or stay awake all night long? That's what almost all of us had to do, to stay awake all night long, and we barely got anywhere. Bobby's not going to the mitigation site. She already tried living there for a short time, but got kicked out. She says she used candles for heat, which is against the rules, then yelled at a volunteer who kept telling her to put them out. So instead, 
Bobby's moving to another unsanctioned camp by some railroad tracks. To her, it's better than the mitigation site. She says it's more free out there. Eventually, police start walking around the camp, asking people when they'll be done packing. When everyone's gone, payloaders drive through the smart lot. Their big metal arms crush the remaining tents and makeshift houses. In the wreckage, you see what people left behind. A feather boa, a shopping cart with a bag of carrots in it, some hamburger rolls on the ground. Soon, there's no sign this camp where people lived and died and saved each other ever existed. And all those unsanctioned camps that appeared downtown months earlier, the camps that forced a reckoning in Olympia, they're gone. About 20 people from the smart lot agree to move to the mitigation site. There's some tension when they arrive, a clash of cultures with fights and bickering early on. The first wave of residents chose to move into the mitigation site weeks ago. This new wave is coming under duress. But a lot of people from the smart lot are like Bobby. They're turned off by the rules at the mitigation site. They fan out into the city, into alleys and under awnings downtown, into the woods and along highways, and under a bridge. That turns into Olympia's next battleground. That's after the break. I'm Viana Davila, editor of the Seattle Times Project Homeless. Our team has done a lot of work covering homelessness in Seattle and King County, but we know there are more stories to tell across the state. So we decided to partner with the team at KNKX Public Radio and join them on the ground in Washington State Capitol to learn more about the homelessness crisis there. We wouldn't be able to do any of this if it weren't for our readers and listeners who support us. So here's what we're asking from you. First, rate Outsiders on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find it. You can also subscribe to the Seattle Times and sign up to make a monthly donation to KNKX. You can find links that'll help you do that in the episode description. We really appreciate it. A pale cement bridge connects Olympia's downtown to the city's west side. You can see it from all over, from the state capitol to houses along the shore, from the edges of Capitol Lake where people run and walk their dogs, to the brand new high-rise apartments going up across the way. The 4th Avenue Bridge is a main thoroughfare in and out of Olympia, an artery feeding the city's heart. And after the smart lot disappears, the bridge becomes the city's fastest growing encampment. Just like the bridge, you can see this camp from all over Olympia. By the time I finally visit, it's grown from just a few people to dozens. A knot of tents has appeared high in the shadowy space where the bridge meets the earth. It's like a cavern with tall ceilings and walls covered in graffiti tags. It's clear a lot of people from the smart lot just moved here a half mile down the road. Since Olympia resumed sweeping encampments, I've watched some of the same people bounce from camp to camp. I expect to see some familiar faces under the bridge, but the first one I see is the last one I expect. Um, it happened about a week ago. Jessica, who I last saw watching over her neighbors at the mitigation site, 
is walking out from under the bridge, looking upset, her clothes dirty, her hair dyed pink. She says she was kicked out of the mitigation site after living there for more than six months. So what was the, what happened? Um, apparently everything has led up to this, but um, my dog was sitting in the corner and another dog came around. I've never met Jessica's dog, but she's described her as mean. The dog's been Jessica's companion, but also her protection on Olympia's streets. She says her dog lunged at another dog that was off-leash at the mitigation site. Jessica says no one was hurt, but it created a commotion. So she had, she had attacked another dog? Well, she went to go and attack you, yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm not even going to beat around the bush, you know, so, yeah. So, and I got rid of her to stay, and it still kicked me out. What did you do with her? Um, I gave her away to the pound. So, they didn't know what they're going to do to her, so it's okay. <laughs> and now I don't have any protection. I've been in four fights underneath the bridge. They don't want me here. Uh, and I have nowhere to go. <laughs> and so, I've been trying to get back in there because I was wrongfully kicked out of there, you know? I mean, there's a million things that have happened in that place. You know, people yelling and screaming and fighting and men beating up women and, and you know, the employees are just it's double standards. So. Jessica says it was a city employee who delivered the message, someone who works under Colin and manages day-to-day affairs at the mitigation site. He just, I woke up and he says, you're gone. I was like, what? <laughs> I have so many hours underneath my belt of volunteering and helping people and breaking things up, like fights and stuff. I've had, I've had people spit on me. I've had been hit. I've been slapped. I've had objects thrown at me. And I had to stand there and take it because that was my job. Working the security tent? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And none of that counts. People who work at the mitigation site say Jessica had a pattern of fighting and causing drama with her neighbors. She developed a reputation as a difficult person. The dog attack was just the breaking point. The same pattern is already emerging in her first week under the bridge, in those four fights she mentioned. In episode three of Outsiders, Seattle Times reporter Sydney Brownstone told us about the sexual abuse Jessica experienced throughout her childhood. And she says that history could explain Jessica's patterns of conflict as an adult, her instincts around self-preservation. I think, you know, what we don't appreciate about people who are considered quote-unquote difficult is that the way that they are acting is probably a perfectly rational response to what they've learned and the circumstances they've lived in through their lives. And I think, you know, so often when we talk about homelessness, people perceive homeless people as crazy or irrational, but sometimes these behaviors are perfectly rational. Everybody decides to pick on me, and it's just me, so I have to defend myself, you know? And I'm very loud and obnoxious when I have to stand my ground, and I'm sorry, but this is me, and this is who I am. This researcher I spoke to, Barbara Brush, had worked with homeless mothers in Detroit, and I was describing Jessica's story to her. One of the questions she asked me was, well, how is she doing now? Um, And I said, well, she's, you know, she keeps getting kicked out of these different environments, and the researcher asked why, and I said, I think it's altercations with with other um, residents at these places. And I hadn't told her anything about Jessica, and she didn't miss a beat, and she just said PTSD. 
Wow. So, and I think that's for people working in this field, that's incredibly common. They see it all the time. And so my question is, if people are seeing it all the time, why aren't we digging into this more? In other words, why make help with homelessness contingent on people behaving a certain way when we know trauma can make them behave in totally different ways? Jessica tells me this isn't her first time under the 4th Avenue Bridge. I've been beaten up, I've been raped. Um, you know, Cindy here. In episode one, we heard Jessica had been raped before she moved into the mitigation site. She says this is where it happened, right here, under this bridge. Uh, two years ago when I first came out here, some guy, I didn't know who it was, but um, he put me face down in the dirt and tore my pants off and, you know, and uh, I don't know who it was or anything, so I don't even know if, they, if the person got caught from doing it from somebody else or anything. I don't know. Have you, you've never seen him again? Have you? I didn't see the face at all. He had put, it was dark and he pushed me down in the ground. It's near the spot where she sleeps now. Under the 4th Avenue Bridge, she's re-entering a strange world. Rumors fly around, like ghost stories. Some are hard to verify. Stories of masked men, possibly vigilantes, seen lurking near the edge of the camp. Stories of women getting into cars and never coming back. People out here disappear from each other's lives all the time. Few people have phones, so when someone goes away, everyone's left wondering whether the police picked them up or they moved on to a different town or went back home to family or something worse. I don't think any female should be out here alone. There's people disappearing out in the woods. My friend Echo is gone. Jessica's friend Echo is in her early 20s, a member of the local Nisqually tribe. She was homeless in Olympia, but no one's seen her in weeks. Posts seeking information about Echo appear on Facebook. For a while, she's part of a trend of missing indigenous women from all over the United States. But later, Echo's mom emails me and says she was eventually found and is safe with family. Her mom just says Echo is, quote, alive by miracle. I ask for more details, but she doesn't respond. If you ask people under the 4th Avenue Bridge how they survive, they'll tell you a Crayola crayon will burn for 15 to 30 minutes. Light them like candles. Are you serious? Yep, they'll last for 15 to 30 minutes. They'll tell you baby wipes aren't as good as a shower, but they can make you feel clean. Because <laughs> it's not easy taking baths or showering. They'll tell you hand sanitizer ignites like lighter fluid, and it'll burn even when it's wet out, so you can use it to dry your clothes. I learned that in Spokane when I got caught in a, a freak uh, rainstorm. We use dental floss to sew with because it's usually wax covered and it has great strength. They'll tell you the most important thing is figuring out right away who you can trust and who you can't. There's no manual to surviving out here. Everyone makes it up as they go along. They pick up tips from each other. They spend months or years building skills and routines that get them through each day and night outdoors. For a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people, that routine involves drugs. 
Back in episode one, a woman who called herself Tall Sarah talked to me about how the stresses of homelessness can push people further into drug use or make recovery almost impossible. At the time, she was moving into the mitigation site and hoping the tent city could relieve some of those stresses. But I step out from under the 4th Avenue bridge, and there she is. Yeah, I got evicted from the uh, mitigation camp. Like Jessica, Sarah's been kicked out of the mitigation site. The amount of stuff she packed into her area there got out of control. That's why I got evicted, is because of what it looked like outside my tent. When I don't think mine was nearly as bad as the ones that are over there now. So they said you had, were accumulating too much stuff or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So, whatever. Their loss, not mine. When I met Sarah months ago, she told me she was a mom who had a home and lost everything. But I never knew the details. We sit down on some rocks, and Sarah tells me a bit more. Most people don't use because it's something that they choose to. It's that their emotional pain and sometimes their physical pain is so bad that they just want to be able to block it so that they don't have to feel it as much. My initial drug habit started when my son died. He uh, ended up getting cancer. I was 18 years old, and he was a year and a half, and it sucked. It was hard, really hard. And then um, I was clean for a couple of years, and then I fell off the wagon again. And then I stayed clean for like 10, 11 years. That's the period when Sarah says she had everything. But then she and her husband separated after 12 years together. She started using again. I just didn't want to feel anymore. I didn't want to feel the pain. I couldn't handle it. I felt like my heart was literally shattered into a million pieces. So, yeah, I, I guess you would say I'm a drug addict, but, you know, it's just the way life is sometimes. I don't want to be here anymore, though. I don't want to do the drug addict thing anymore. I want a normal life, as normal as normal gets. Sarah's been unsheltered longer than most of the people we've met out here. She's survived outside in at least three different cities over the course of five years. Her story is an example of how that happens, of the forces that can trap people out here, of what could happen to someone like Jessica, who's just re-entering life under the 4th Avenue Bridge. It turns out Sarah's just visiting the bridge, and her home is one of the many smaller camps scattered across town. It's on a wooded ridge along a highway, almost invisible among the trees. Seattle Times Project Homeless reporter Scott Greenstone spent some time there with Sarah to hear the rest of her story. Tell me what you found. Sarah's camp feels very remote and almost like a fortress. She helped me crawl under a fence to get in. And the tents and the trees and the hanging tarps create little almost like chambers. And Sarah is a striking figure in the middle of it all, six feet, four inches tall. In Aberdeen, my nickname's Big Bird. I know, right? Some people call me Glamazon, some call me Amazon, some, everybody has a different name for me. Do you like it? Uh, I've just grown used to it, you know? There's really nothing I can do. Sarah's in her early 40s. 
her age and her experience surviving outside and maybe her height give her this role as a street mom that's kind of a protector and a mentor to younger people who are unsheltered, a safe person they can turn to for help. She says she has more than 100 street kids. And Sarah's appearance is a sign of how adept she is at surviving outside at this point. She's usually dressed fashionably with free clothes she gets at clothing banks. She barters for jewelry. And her appearance is also kind of an echo of her past life as a mom who lived in a five-bedroom house with three cars. She liked to go on wine tasting tours. Most people, when they see me, don't think I'm homeless. They are quite shocked to find out that I am. When you ask Sarah how she became homeless, she usually says, A series of unfortunate flipping events. A series of unfortunate events and kind of lists them off. Her husband left her. She started dating a guy who ended up being a violent offender. And as a result of that, her daughter got taken away by CPS. And she went into a spiral. That meth addiction she told you about earlier, that started when she was young. And around this time, she fell back into it. And she ended up getting evicted from a house in Aberdeen. They wanted us out of the house. That's it. Once there's a month-to-month lease, you can have a no-cause eviction. She kind of just left the house and went down to the river and started living in a vehicle. And she starts out not really knowing how to make it outside. I've been to the point where I've had no shoes, I've had nothing to eat in days, I have nothing but the clothes on my back keeping me warm, and asking people to help me and getting the door shut in my face over and over again, I mean, survive. That's what you do, you survive any way that you can. When people steal food, it's really because they need to eat, because they're that hungry. And there's so many of us out here, and it's like, I know a lot of us just want a normal life again, and it's like, how do you even begin to get there? Little by little, over the course of five years, she got better at the survival part of it. But she doesn't seem to be able to overcome the forces keeping her out here. That eviction on her record is a mark against her with any landlord. She also has a violent assault on her record from several years ago. And it's not just her past that's an obstacle, it's also her present addiction to meth. And here's why this is so complex. Her meth use is contributing to her staying homeless. And her homelessness is contributing to her meth use. Sarah says she's taken five evaluations for substance use disorder. That's basically when you say, I want to get into treatment for addiction. And a specialist gives you an assessment. And according to her, they all say the same thing. And all of them say that I have all the tools and everything I need to quit. And I do. I just need a steady place to live and not outdoors. Because I've proven it over and over again. Every time I'm indoors, I'm fine. It's just when I get back out here and it's crazy that it all goes to shit. Substance use is a way to self-medicate emotional pain and trauma, as Sarah said. Lots of homeless folks have lots of pain and trauma. But when you're living outside, it's also a survival tactic. It's, it's hard when you're out here. Like, if I'm in a home, I don't 
want to do it. I have no urge whatsoever. But out here, you kind of have to stay awake so people don't take your stuff. And you have to kind of worry about stuff like that a lot. Meth, in particular, is a way to stay up all night when you're cold or scared of getting attacked. Heroin is a good way to sleep during the day when you stayed up all night. That's where he had to go. Scott and I had been reporting together in Olympia. I meet up with him and Sarah as they're climbing down from Sarah's camp. I watch them scramble down makeshift steps carved in the earth using a railing made out of tree branches. Uh, so you, you, you put this up. That's yeah. Wow. You can just barely hear someone yell at them from a passing car. What did they yell as they drove by? Get a life? Did they just yell that? Yeah. Oh, I didn't hear that. Yeah. Just before we part ways with Sarah, I ask her who else lives in her camp. She starts listing names and then mentions one of her many street kits. My street daughter, Fox, is getting ready to move back up. And yeah, you know Fox. Fox is the young woman whose overdose we heard early in the episode. Months have passed since then. I reached out to her a few times and she didn't want to talk and eventually I lost track of her. But Sarah says she's still alive and Sarah is one of the people trying to keep her that way. It's rush hour. As the workday ends, Sarah's camp fills with the roar of the highway as commuters start heading home. Before we go, Scott asks Sarah one more question. When was the last time she felt at home? When was the last time you really felt at home? Um, I don't know, it's been so long. Um, I honestly don't remember. That's okay. That's crazy. I don't know, sometimes I feel at home out here, but then it just gets crazy again. Now I'm trying to get out, but it's like, where do you even begin, you know? Where do you even begin? Scott, what did you hear and what Sarah said? I think it's yet another obstacle that maybe we haven't mentioned yet. It's almost like homelessness has its own inertia. I've, I've talked to a lot of people and asked them questions like, how long have you been homeless? Or when did that thing happen? And sometimes they have a really hard time saying how many years ago it, it was. And I think that when you're homeless, time can become a little stretchy. You're spending most of your energy surviving, not watching time pass. And I, I think that in some ways it can move really slowly. You spend a lot of time in lines. Um, you spend a lot of time sitting by your stuff, protecting it. And then in some ways I think it can just slip away incredibly quickly. I think the longer Sarah is out here, I think the harder it is for her to imagine a way out of this. It makes me wonder about someone like Jessica under the 4th Avenue Bridge, who's not at that point yet, but talks about feeling herself slipping 
the more and more I'm out here and the more and more I lose, the more and more I feel like this is just, that there's no hope. I mean, I'm breathing, so I'm thankful for that. I don't want to lose my hope, but I'm slowly but surely losing it. Later in this series, we'll return to Jessica and the 4th Avenue Bridge and revisit Olympia's efforts to move people out of homelessness. But first, we take a detour and look at one man's path into and out of substance use and homelessness, and eventually into comedy. That's next on Outsiders. Outsiders is a collaboration between KNKX Public Radio and the Seattle Times Project Homeless Team. This episode was reported and written by me, Will James, with Scott Greenstone and Sydney Brownstone. Our editors are Aaron Hennessy and Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Additional editing by Anna Sussman. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Seattle Times Project Homeless Editor Viana Davila, KNKX Director of Content Matt Martinez, Digital Content Manager Kari Plogue, and Adrian Flores, who designed our logo. Special thanks to Jessica, Sarah, Bobby, everyone who took time out of very difficult days to share very difficult stories. That's true of every episode, but especially this one. I'm Will James. Thank you for listening.